Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Bex Hay is the CTO and co-founder of Organize. At the age of six, Bex was a self-proclaimed troublemaker, successfully campaigning at school to be allowed to play football with the boys. This highlighted from an early age the importance of being heard, taking action and influencing positive social change. After working in the campaigning space, Bex noticed that major barriers for people improving their work conditions was that they didn't know where to go, they couldn't afford legal support and they were afraid of the actions their employers might take if they found out. So, Bex teamed up with her co-founder Nat Wally to build Organise. Organise provides a safe, trusted space where people can anonymously discuss topics with colleagues and peers, get access to expert advice, and use tools purpose-built for running effective campaigns. Organise have supported over 3,000 work-led actions to help create better working conditions at companies like Co-op, Amazon, Waterstones, and many more. Hey, Bex, great to have you on the show. How are you doing? Hi, Craig. Yeah, excited to be here. Good, good. So I was doing my research and I noticed um, pretty much, you know, your whole career has been spent in the campaigning space and in, in different roles and different companies. Um, so just wondered, you know, what attracted you to this space originally and, you know, what's basically kept you there for your career so far? Yeah, great question. Um, well, I guess in some ways, I think I've sort of been a campaigner or troublemaker for want of a better word <laughs> yeah. quite a young age um sort of started age six when I uh ran a campaign at my teachers at school to let me play football with the boys um which was successful it was my first win Good. um and it's thankfully something you now don't have to campaign for as a girl at school um and I think that kind of uh yeah that thread of sort of I guess being naturally interested and naturally wanting to be in an era of social change has been a bit of a, a bit of a thread through my life. Um, I, uh, so for context, my, um, my family, on my mum's side moved over to England, uh, from Iran, uh, when my mum was, was little and kind of, um, kind of grew up in a context of like very mixed cultural upbringing at the same time as, uh, all of the after effects of nine 11 and the rise of Islamophobia was happening in England. And I've sort of, I guess, sort of grew up in quite a, relatively politicized context of sort of seeing the, um, you know, having an appreciation for, you know, living in the democracy and the freedoms we have, but also an appreciation of how fragile it is and how quickly things can change. Um, and really that's kind of been a bit of a drive, I think through like uh, my early adulthood. And as I was sort of, uh, starting out in my career, I, uh, I studied history at university, which isn't the typical pathway I guess to being a CTO or being in technology um but for me it was kind of really been like interested in social change and in the nature of it um and I kind of stumbled upon technology a bit sideways but really it was um as I was getting quite involved in uh sort of community organizing and political activism um while I was at uni sort of found myself frantically googling how do you build a website um, because there was a community protest we were organizing the next day um, around the closing of youth centers, like across the whole the whole town and city. And I was like, you got to you got to get awareness of this. You got to get it out there. Um, and so frantically self taught myself to code from that, and sort of started building up that that kind of skill set from there. Um, yeah, I guess that's sort of been the the way in which, like, again, I didn't really have a particularly linear career path or sort of how it started, um, but in various forms. I've been involved in in social change and in particularly in kind of like that intersection of building technology in a way that helps people get involved in in kind of social issues. Um, one of my first uh, roles was at an organisation called called Share Action in their early days, which was at the height of the I think what was called the shareholder spring at the time. But it was when um, we were really starting to see this trend after the financial crisis of. Uh, investors and pension funds, institution investors starting to really question the way companies were operating, saying like, actually, maybe it's not right that you're paying um, the CEO 3 million in bonus packets at the same time as not paying a living wage to your workers. Or maybe you should have a policy around how your company is treating the planet, that sort of thing. Um, and sort of being involved in the early stages of, of, of activism around that area, um, coupled with um, then a few other roles I had around political organizing and election organizing, um, sort of have been able to sort of like, I guess, be in a space of seeing how, um, 
you know, there's some a lot of good progress we've seen in terms of how society moves forward and people really kind of saying like, you know, these things or these areas of 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 life and work aren't right. But at the same time, really seeing a drag in the world of work and the way in which companies operate and and the impact that has on people. Um, and that very much is, yeah, the thread that then kind of, I guess, goes into how, how organized came about. Yeah, no, uh, I love that. And it sounds like it was, um, I guess really impactful for you that from like a really early age, you realized how, um, how much impact like an individual can have by just taking a stand or having a voice, which I think a lot of people don't realize that early on or don't kind of have the confidence to do that to, to much later in life. Yeah, for sure. And I think the kind of, um, the fear that can come with that as well, as well <laughs> yeah. as the kind of realization that actually sometimes people just, you know, you will be knocked back or you will not be listened to. And that, um, I think that feeling of disempowerment is something that many, many different people in society can talk about, depending on their backgrounds, depending on where they come from, that feeling of um, not being listened to or kind of like other forces at play in terms of how power works and, and that, yeah, your voice may not matter in that. Definitely. Definitely. So look, I, I was actually, re- I was so looking forward to having you on the show because I, I, this is a space that I know very little about actually. So um, I was going to just spend a bit of time actually talking to you about kind of like how people can take action. And, you know, if, if we look specifically at the UK and if, uh, and, you know, in the context of like the workplace and some of the issues that you see, and, and so I'm sure some of the campaigns that you've had, um, like if, if someone does have a problem at work and it's a, you know, I don't know workplace policy issue, what options do they have to resolve that issue? Like what, what, what exists in the UK right now for an employee to take action? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, and I think the answer for right is, is sadly quite limited, um, which is part of the sort of experience I actually had personally as well. Um, I kind of like, the, I guess the, the, the thread I found through my early career particularly was that experience of being uh, a young woman in the workplace. Um, and that, uh, you know, I think, I was not alone in experiencing harassment at work, nor were my friends. Um, or in one case, one of my friends who works at, you know, highly paid corporate job who found us, who found herself getting fired for, for getting pregnant. These sort of situations that are happening where actually in, in some ways they're downright illegal and in other cases yeah. they're on that borderline of like, is this right? Is this okay? What do you do about it? Um, and, you know, your first potential instinct or option is I'll go to HR or I'll, you know, I'll talk to someone in my company potentially who could help me. Maybe it's just a case that no one knew about it. Um, that can be a very difficult option and also very exposing for people, particularly because, and you may, you may not realize this up until the point you're actually doing it, which is the HR really are there to represent the employer. Um, mm. And they're not necessarily, that Venn diagram of whether or not they are helping you is not always true, particularly in a situation where it might be that you're exposing something or challenging an incident that happened at work or that maybe like is you know goes all the way up to the top to your boss or to um the board um and you can find yourself in in a very risky situation in that regard um there's then some other options that you might see i think if you're in um if you're in the public sector there's more access to potentially a trade union if you're in a workplace that is already unionized um there is the option of of going to your trade union that can um have its merits particularly in terms of maybe if you need to get access to a lawyer and you don't have have the funds for that um but sadly in a lot of cases uh access to trade unions is very limited um particularly in the private sector where it's sort of the kind of the density is almost is almost zero the majority of people um don't have that ability to pick up the phone to get access to a lawyer to get access to advice about really what to do and what to do next um sometimes you're you're really left kind of relying on either your own knowledge, the network of your own colleagues, um, if you're able to figure something out, if you're able to group together and kind of kind of make a demand. Um, that can be a difficult space. There's also not necessarily all the tools out there to be able to call out something or mobilize. Um, I'm sure we've seen there's many cases of it. It seems to currently be going on right now in Twitter, which is that if you write about your workplace on your company Slack or over email or in what you think is a sort of like secure group with your colleagues, um, you can find yourself being fired or you can find your boss being able to read and access all of that content and all of that chat. And it's, that's a very insecure place to be as well. Yeah. No, it's pretty scary actually, because you think about the variety and the volume of like the problems that exist and actually you'd hope that the options to the employers would, would mirror that, but it's really the opposite. Um, and I was going to ask, like, in terms of what you see or your like knowledge, like what are some of the most common, like, workplace issues or policies that people are taking action against and and the second part of the question is are there certain sectors or like types of workers that are more vulnerable or like suffer more than most uh yeah also a great question i think there's lots of um 
lots of ways to kind of to kind of look at what what the scale of the problem is or what the common issues are. I think there's um, maybe kind of two threads that I think uh, are affecting everyone, regardless of of your role, your job, or your skill. Right now, um, one of those is the you know the upheaval and the impact of of the pandemic on life at work. So kind of um, for a lot of people that really suddenly was a noticeable shift in not just how you work. So for a lot of people who were with more desk-based jobs or maybe kind of more in the private sector, white collar, suddenly finding themselves, they didn't have water cooler chat anymore. They didn't have the ability to see their colleagues. They suddenly found the rug really pulled out of them in terms of what is the health and safety at my workplace? What What are my rights if I need time off if I'm sick? That sort of thing. The same parallel was also happening in uh, people who were on more frontline jobs. So, you know, frontline shop workers, people working in the NHS in healthcare, suddenly finding themselves in a situation where they might have assumed their employer had their back or would have their back in a situation where they needed sick leave, they needed emergency childcare, all of these sorts of situations, but suddenly finding that actually their employer was not prepared or was actively not willing um, to kind of give them that flexibility or those extra rights at work. And I think there's been an interesting shift in the pandemic of that realization, I think has happened for a lot of people, potentially of a situation that already exists, but really magnified uh, through that experience. Um, and I think the second sort of layer that's affecting really everyone right now is rising inflation, cost of living, food yeah. prices, energy prices. Um, it's really quite hard to not be touched by that at the moment, um, depending on, you know, your job and your salary level, but with a situation right now where, um, you know, nearly 5 million workers in the UK are in what, what's classed as low pay work, um, where you're, um, you know, the minimum wage or the wage you are on is literally not enough <laughs> to be able to keep a roof over your head, have clothing and have your heating on. Um, coupled with for, for many more workers, and this is also very much true in the US as well, where you're not even on a full-time contract anyway, you might be on something called zero hours work or zero hours contract. Um, and so really for millions of workers right now, just being able to have those those basics of a security of like knowing what day to day, how much work you're going to have, what you're going to be paid for it. And are you going to be okay at the end of the month? Um, that situation actually seems to be getting worse rather than better as, as, as the years go on. Um, and so I think those two things all in one are leading to a situation really where the, the world of work is quite clearly broken. Um, and people are noticing it and people are wanting to do something about it. Um, but it being sometimes quite difficult to, to, to mobilize or to have a kind of collective voice within that. Yeah. And, and on that kind of final point about the difficulties, and, and that was something I was going to ask you about next was like the barriers that exist for people in terms of their ability to take action. Like, um, you know, you talked earlier a bit about people just not knowing what their options are sometimes and it's very hard to know uh, and sometimes you go to people like HR functions thinking that's a good route but it's not necessarily so in terms of people yeah taking action what, what are some of the other reasons that people struggle to know what to do or like don't take action yeah I think there's a, cu- a couple of things here one um potentially kind of I think there's a there's a narrative at the moment I don't know if you've heard of this sort of like this quiet quitting culture or something kind of along yeah. those lines um which you know in some ways sounds great it's like people are taking back control and sort of taking charge of their careers um I think that narrative actually kind of misses out quite a key component of the lived experience for most people right now is it it's too risky to quit your job particularly if um you know you've got childcare needs you've got dependents you really need financial security quitting isn't the best option and is incredibly risky for a lot of people. Um, and so actually it comes, it comes more to a question of within the job you might have or the work experience you are in, how can you make that better? How can you advocate for yourself or advocate with your colleagues to improve that situation? Um, because yeah, sadly, while that might be the case for some people who, who are maybe in a position of their career where they can move on, that is not the reality for most working people. Um, and I think the kind of the gap or clearly what's kind of, really need at the moment is that ability to fix your own employment, improve your life at work, particularly for a lot of people as well. There's aspects of your job you might like. (laughs) There is like parts of your company you might um, really enjoy. You you know, people pour their hearts and souls sometimes into work. And if there might be some things that they're not feeling they're getting back from that, it doesn't mean they want to leave the job necessarily. They just want to be recognized and they want to have a way for their, for their voice to be heard. Um, And I think the similar thing, as you mentioned as well, of like knowing what those next steps are, what are those first steps um outside of quitting or I guess being some kind of like 
rabble rouser <laughs> that really sticks your hand above the parapet again, that risk of being fired is real. And that risk of being exposed as a troublemaker is real as well. Yeah. Um, and for so many people, that's not, that's not their natural inclination. And that's, yeah, definitely fair enough. Yeah, totally. And um, to talk about if, if people do decide to go down the, the campaign route, um, you know, it's, I've never I've never done that. I, I don't even know what they look like or how they work. Like, could you just explain like what is a campaign? How do they work? And, and you know, how can they then actually create scenarios where employers are forced to take action? Yeah, totally. Um, in lots of ways, I think the word the word campaign is is unhelpful because again you, you cast this picture of you must be a uh, you must be a rabble rouser you must be a revolutionary yeah. um that again just isn't isn't the reality really what you're talking about when you're talking about making or improving your situation at work you're talking about a way essentially to to build power with your colleagues like your employer in most situations has a majority if not all the power in a situation it has oversight over the salary everyone is on they have oversight of a company policy they have the ability to chop and change all those decisions you as an employee depending how far removed you might be from the decision making process can have anything from absolutely no say over that to maybe somewhere in the middle where you might have some soft power and some soft influence um and the key thing really about changing or improving your situation at work is about okay what is the leverage or the mechanism or the channels I can use and how can I also include or involve my colleagues in that so that you have essentially either a safety in numbers as a kind of collective or a way in which you can essentially advocate for your demand or advocate for the thing you would like to change. Um, I can maybe go into a a few examples later on, but what we often find particularly organized is the case is that, um, the employer sometimes just doesn't or is not aware of some of what the working experience might be like. This, I think, is particularly true for um, larger employers, particularly kind of like where their employees may be shop floor or having this particular working experience and the boss is so far removed, they can't even begin to fathom what the kind of key challenges are for someone in that working situation. Um, and actually, that, again, just shows how, how broken that world of work is that the employer is not able to escalate or to be able to, to, to share that data in a traditional method. So instead, you've got to look to actually, what are some other ways you can do that? You can potentially gather that data yourself with your colleagues. You can then create a demand or create a way in which you can advocate for that change. Um, and generally speaking, that does not mean that you've got to go and barricade the door down <laughs> and you know, take a kind of adversarial approach. Actually, the f- exactly. The first line approach really is identifying what is the situation you would like to change? What is some of the ways that you can advocate for that case and then what is the way you can take that to the decision maker whether that's your boss or manager or whoever kind of has has that given power at the time and do you find like um when there is that collective internally within a business and the the, there is then like no excuse around lack of awareness at a senior level within the company will most companies actually make change at that point when they realize there's a big demographic within their company that are struggling with a certain condition um and like how many of those don't care and it's actually kind of got to go more I guess external it's got to be like public social pressure has to start mounting for them to start to do something yeah totally there can be definitely different routes to change depending on that situation depends on the employer um I'd probably say I think far more than you might assume are in that first camp of the employer once they know or have a visibility of some of the situation of what is happening for their employees plus an amount of pressure from having seen the level of support potentially among how many employees or how many colleagues or how many people have been involved um that usually creates a tipping point by which you can get if not all of your demands or some of your demands met um so so an example of of one that happened on on organized about a year ago was um grocery shop workers at the co-op which is essentially small chain of of grocery stores all around the uk um what workers were often finding was because they were there was a new policy where it was called a one-on-one shift, which is essentially one person working in the shop front, one at the back, um, which I assume was some some decision made up at the top top of the company chain to improve efficiency and how many workers you needed employed at, at one time. Um, the reality of that was that the person who was on the shop floor was on their own and in an incredibly risky situation where they were vulnerable to knife crime, people coming in, armed robberies, all all of the above. There's actually a parallel situation happening in the US around the Dollar Tree stores as well. And obviously with, in the US, it's, it's gun robbery rather than knives, but essentially the same situation. Um, what was happening, however, was 
the co-op had no idea this was happening, that all these armed robberies <laughs> were happening, people were being threatened at knife point. And the main reason for that was for in order for the employees to report a situation like that or to report that there was a robbery in their store, they had to stay behind after their shift and fill out a form that took half an hour to fill in to explain the situation and to send it up the HR chain and potentially to never get a response. And so you might imagine if on the, <laughs> on the wage you're on um, for that work, you're keen to get home at the end of your shift. You're not keen to sit there and spend more time um, putting you know, comments in for a company and then not getting a response. So this was not being reported. The management had no idea it was happening. I and mean, the workers were really quite worried about it and feeling it was a situation that um, they didn't necessarily know how to shift or how to change. Um, what they did on uh, when they, on the organized platform was it started with just a couple of workers saying, actually, is this happening to you as well? Am I alone in this situation? Is this, is this like, um, you know, something that we should maybe do something about? Um, and suddenly because they started to gather a network of uh, other co-op workers all around the stores, all around the country, they started to realize the scale of the problem. Um, and so they used a like, basic survey that they built on the platform to gather all that data in. So to say, how many times has it happened to you? What was the experience like? What was the effect on, on the co-op? Um, and then some kind of questions of like, you know, what are some solutions here to which an obvious one is to not have one-on-one -on -one shifts or to have various different changes in the security and the arrangements in the store. Um, and just in the act of compiling that report, taking it up to company HQ, it, it was listened to because the employer suddenly realized just how large this problem was. And also, I think a little bit on the back foot of kind of like, how on earth did it come to the situation that we didn't know all of these yeah, things yeah. were happening? And that was really because they were not structured in a way. The power was all up at the top of the chain. No one able to advocate or say what it was like um, on the shop floor. Um, and yeah, that was a situation where maybe you might have assumed the company wouldn't, wouldn't have responded in a positive way. But with that data presented, it was so hard to say no. And it was so clear what the data exposed, um, that they were able to get to get those demands met. Um, and that's often quite a common situation of um, when the employees are able to gather data about the situation, they're able to do it collectively in numbers. That also gives them safety as well. Like you can't you can't fire everyone who's taking part in this and you can yeah, do it yeah, in an anonymized way as well. Um, and then that means that you're far more likely to, to get listened to. It starts to rebalance that power in the workplace. And that's that's where it gets really interesting. Yeah, no, it is. And yeah, it makes, it makes total sense when you describe it like that. Um, and I could probably spend another half an hour chatting to you about how this stuff works, but I think it's probably a good, good point. And I think people are probably guessing what you do, but it'd be great to hear from your own words, Bex, like what Organize does and yeah, how you help people. Yeah, sure. So, um, in, in a, in a very short nutshell, Organize is a worker led network for fixing employment. Um, so we, our mission is to empower every worker with, the tools, the network, and the confidence to get heard, heard at work. Um, and those three areas are each very important in themselves. So recognizing that um, it can be quite scary and difficult to advocate for yourself at work, particularly in a situation where you've been powerless or you've been isolated. Um, and so really what organizers about is saying, actually, here is a safe space where you can work with your colleagues to identify problems that are happening to you at work or the issues that you'd like to resolve um, and so that first step is really being able to to let off steam to, to to talk to your colleagues and to be like hang on is this happening for you as well or how do you feel about the recent changes in our company what should we do something about it um, and then the following steps from that you're able to clarify the issue you might be having so whether that's um, you know running a survey to see how far and wide um, is an issue in, in your company or in your industry. Um, and then a third step from that, once you've identified some of those issues or some things you'd like to change, um, is there are a set of a suite of tools essentially where you can leverage and kind of, I guess, campaign without risk would be the, be the way I'd frame it. But you can, um, you're able to um, run surveys, run polls, gather data into reports, you're able to run petitions and open letters, those tools that might traditionally have been used in political organizing, but actually instead applied to the workplace in a way that um, because you've got safety in numbers and because you don't have to sort of like publicly announce your name, I, you know, Bex, hey, I'm starting a campaign. Yeah. Um, you're able to have that confidence that you can, you can start something. And when your colleagues are with you, then you're really able to rally and really able to advocate within, within your own, within your own company or within your own industry for that change. Um, so broadly speaking, it is, um, it is a network, but really like crucially, it's different to the kind of social networks like, I guess, Facebook or Twitter, which are defined by the people you know. 
yeah. also different to the kind of, I guess, like next door or kind of um, neighborhood style <laughs> social networks. Um, it's actually about where you work, your employment status, but also the industry you work in or others who might work in a similar working situation. So it doesn't matter if, you know, maybe you only know three other people who work in the same supermarket as you because you all have different shifts. But actually, the fact that there's 12,000 of you in the organized network all across the UK or all across Europe, suddenly that means that you have so much more power than you did on your own to be able to advocate for a change. Yeah, no, I love it. And I, I had a look around the platform the other day and, um, yeah, I love it. It's, it straight away, it feels like it's just a complete safe space. Um, like the way it's built, um, you know, quite on, like I saw a couple of discussion points and it was always like anonymized user, blah, 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 like some, some number. Um, and it's not all kind of like, let's take down a company. Some of it's just actually ask questions like, is this normal or does anyone else, uh, would anyone know the answer to this question? Like it's, it's not all like big power, <laughs> you know, big, big kind of action points. It's, it's some of it's actually just like, can I get a quick kind of answer to this, this very normal question within the workplace of what's normal? If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io, where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess a question I had about, um, you know, I, I saw you've got the community to over to a million workers, which is incredible. Um, go back to that, like, co-op example, for, yeah, as, as, a, as, a, as, as an instance. So, you know, if you did have like, a couple of people that had been in that situation um, and they go onto the platform and, and there aren't other people from co-op to, like, share that experience with, how, how do they get that traction within the co-op community? Like, because obviously they're anonymous, like, how do they get other people from co-op to get onto the organized platform to then start, yeah, adding their views? And Yeah, totally. Um, so there's a few different parts of this and really it kind of, it comes back to kind of organize, um, being really like a network affects business, like in the, in the classic sense of the more people you get involved, actually the more powerful the network and the tool becomes. Um, and so the main way, um, all that growth that happened, particularly we found like once, um, you know, when we launched Organize, it was in line with when the pandemic started as well. Um, and we had those kind of people who were experiencing, um, you know, horrific situations in their workplace. And these tools were kind of there ready for, for that demand. Um, and the main way it grows is you share um, a question or you share a poll or or maybe if like you've gone as far as making a petition at this point, um, sharing that with your colleagues is the way in which it grows. So one person sharing with three people them sharing with their three friends or their three colleagues um, and it goes exponentially exponentially from that um, so even if you might be let's say you're one of the first couple of workers at your workplace on organize um, it's very easy for that to double and triple within a yeah. matter of days particularly if you start with something as simple as how's work going right now or what do we think about this pay rise this contract it's very low bar and the idea really being that it's about you sharing your experience of work um, and that is, I think, again, the thing that maybe makes it different to other forms of, like, I don't know, campaigning tools or like anonymous forums is it's really specifically um, about you defining what is happening for you at work. And you're anonymous, so you're safe in the sense that you don't need to have your public name on it, but you are verified by organized. Like we have verified that you are this person and, you know, yeah. um, you can have that confidence, that trust that you're not in a kind of, I don't know, a really random community forum where you don't know what on earth it's about, but nor are you in a situation where you're publicly exposing your name for your boss to find you. And it's about having that right middle ground for people to feel safe. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. And um I guess linked to kind of following on from that question. So how, how do the first two from co-op find you? Cause obviously it makes sense network effect after the first few join. Um, I guess, especially in the early days, like no one would have heard of organized. Was it just been like huge focus on SEO and when people Google kind of like taking action, you come up first or has it been like you know, a lot of advertising PR? Um, I've kind of used a variety of different like, <laughs> yeah. growth hack methods at the beginning, yeah, yeah. but really it, is, it has been quite simple in the sense that, um, you know, we actually started, this was before there was a website domain even up. It was as simple as like a, um, a survey monkey form that we put up where, um, women were uploading the, um, maternity pay or the parental leave policy that they had at their company to try and see how it compared to others. Um, 
And that survey, we've been putting it up and maybe sending it to nine of our friends grew to 400 within wow. a couple of days. And then suddenly you're starting to collect these sort of, um, I guess, mini networks, for want of a better word, because what often happens is if someone's got a shared work and experience with someone else, there's that instant level of trust and camaraderie and also like common purpose in wanting to to change and kind of move your workplace forward. And really because you've got that emotional connection and the fact of knowing that actually the more people you get involved, the more powerful it can be. Um, yes, you've got to start with small numbers, but it grows so, so quickly from there because of the natural, the natural effect of it. Um, you know, we tried a few various tools of like, you know, Facebook advertising, um, growth marketing, et cetera. But actually, firstly, we found that the word of mouth was so much more powerful in any case anyway. And also the, um, you know, the types of people and the retention you got back from that was much more um, rewarding and purposeful because it was people specifically growing it in their own network. So rather than a sort of, you know, whatever Facebook randomly defines as as the right audience, this actually was much more effective. So organic growth really has been the way in which this, this network has grown and that's part of the the power of it, which has been, which has been great. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and like you said, organic growth is such a higher quality than like kind of paid growth. Um, so uh, that, that makes sense. And then as as CTO, obviously, you're very close to the products and tech. And I find when people are working in like you know, uh, impact, like tech for good businesses, always can see, like, I always find there's like, like a North Star metric or like a core metric you look at when it comes to finding like value to users. And I just wondered when it comes to organize, like, from a product perspective, what, what is that main metric that you look at where you're like, yes, we're really shifting the needle here? That's a good question. Yeah, I think when you're in a, um, you're growing a business and it's a social mission driven business, there are a few different ways that you really want to hold yourself to account on both those fronts. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things that we really look at the, um, and this really has been one that um, as we were kind of growing and building, organize it became more evident how important this was. And that thing I said earlier about it being about the confidence to get heard at work, as well as having the tools in the network. Um, that emotional confidence was really the thing that we were noticing was defining um, whether or not someone was able to, once they maybe started something in their workplace or were advocating for a change, were able to keep going and keep the momentum. Um, particularly as sometimes, you know, depending on your ask or depending on your demand, it might be a week long sort of situation or it might be one that actually you are um you're going at it for a number of months or maybe even a couple of years where you're growing your network with your colleagues and so we have various ways in which we measure that confidence level in people and that kind of I guess belief and empowerment that they're getting from the product because the key thing here is like yes you know even if you could have the most amazing engagement in the world or like the number of people involved what really matters is are people genuinely creating change in their workplace and building the confidence and belief that they can make that change happen. That's really the critical piece here because it's about power building, because it's about ultimately changing your workplace. And yes, maybe getting the the pay rise, the promotion at the end of it, that reward comes in time. Um, but whether or not you feel that confidence is, is so, so key. So various forms of um, surveys and interviews and research goes into making sure we are measuring that well, but really making sure that the product is geared towards you feeling safe and confident to do these things. Like we're really recognizing that society is like not in line with where people are wanting it to be, particularly in the workplace. And so this product here is kind of try- attempting to bridge that gap and it's saying actually um, you can achieve the change of collective action, but for a variety of different reasons, nearly everyone who comes to the platform has not done this before or has not experienced that empowerment before and has actually experienced the opposite of it. So you're really trying to build something that is flipping the psychology and attempting to challenge that that power structure in the workplace. So I would say those measuring confidence has really been the, the, the key critical thing that's defined whether or not this works. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that. And I imagine, you know, when it comes to like hiring or like, you know, you're building that team out and they're like, you're talking about whether you use this term or not, but like that's an all-star metric that's something really powerful for people to get behind and like just zoning on in terms of that's our mission. And that's the impact we can really have on people's lives. Like it's, it's a big one, but rather than we're going to increase you know, user engagement or <laughs> whatever it might be, where it's like quite a dry, dry metric. Yeah, for sure. And I think also the, you know, part of the reason that you'd, you'd work in a, in a social change business is because you're interested in what it is doing in itself. And the fact that the business is powering, is powering something like that. Um, so yeah, and I think it's one of, one of the most rewarding things is, is being able to actually see that change in in our users or be able to see the difference in where they started and where they got to. And that's really kind of, that's when you're really seeing the long-term value of like, it's not just you're coming for 
one particular thing or maybe a really urgent problem at work is happening for you now, but actually two years down the line, you are part of that community and you're still organizing for change and you're st- you're doing even yeah. more things from that. hundred um, percent. So in terms of like looking forwards uh, when it comes to organize, like well, what's coming up over the next like, year or two that you're really excited about? Um, right, yeah, so... I mean, many different things. Uh, the key thing for us at the moment that we're, we're really looking, we're starting to see a fair amount of organic growth happening in or across different markets, but in the US in particular. Um, I guess it's not a surprise or shock revelation that working rights in the US yeah. um, going down a similar trend in the UK, but I've actually, you know, even things like, uh, um, you know, how much time off you get as a new parent or the like default statutory sick leave, all of these things that um, some of which are taken for granted in Europe for not even in place in in the US, the minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, I believe. Um, And so I think, you know, in that context, you're also seeing a lot right now of a few different workplaces in the US are starting to organize, are starting to um, do forms of collective action, starting to really raise their voices, um, some of which has been very successful and some of which has has fallen um, due to some of those things we mentioned earlier about they're using Slack or Facebook or channels or technology that isn't safe. And they're finding themselves like it's quite difficult to really move forward from that. Um, so, yeah, so we're starting to see sort of several thousand um, up to kind of 20,000 users coming in from the US and um, starting to kind of scope their demands. Um, and so I think uh, kind of, you know, long term, really, um, Organize is a global business. We've you know piloted, started in the UK. That's where we've kind of grown the initial traction. But fundamentally, like the the platform, the product is agnostic to geography. It's really about you and your working situation. And it is actually even more powerful when you start to think of it from the perspective of workers from across a global supply chain could be on organized, talking about their different experiences and the different things that they are looking to change in a company up and down that chain. Um, we started to see some really exciting um, examples of this. I think uh, Amazon in particular is one where... Um, Again, traditionally, you can very disempowered, very isolating work in, in Amazon warehouses and very hard to advocate for change. Um, and one uh, one campaign that really took off started with just one Amazon worker who was noticing that every day when he was finishing his shift, there were all these items in the warehouse that were just sitting on the side waiting to go to landfill to be destroyed, like brand new TVs, food that was uneaten, all these products that had just been sent back for whatever reason back to Amazon. And Amazon was just destroying them. Um, and and his first question was, he just simply put a question, a small survey up on Organize saying, are you seeing this? Am I, am I going mad? Is, is this happening in other warehouses as well? Like, what, what is this about? Um, and again, within, within a matter of weeks, um, along with several thousand other Amazon Amazon workers who were saying exactly the same thing. It was happening in warehouses in Scotland, in England, in Germany. It was clearly a, a global problem that was happening in Amazon warehouses where millions of items go into landfill being destroyed for absolutely no reason other than the company overlooking it, not having a clear policy on it. Um, and so those workers started teaming up and mapping, again, that thing of mapping the data of what was happening on the ground. Um, worked in partnership with, with ITV in the UK to kind of get this frontline news, get this exposed um, a couple of Amazon workers went in and sort of secretly filmed those kind of landfill pockets. So it was very hard to deny um, that data and what was happening. Um, they then started a, a petition to kind of get that kind of public support alongside them as well, kind of recognizing, you know, Amazon's a global brand. doesn't matter where you live or shop and yeah. you're aware of Amazon. Um, the combination of that news expose, the petition going, I think went 80,000 signatures within 48 hours. Suddenly. Amazon HQ in not just in the UK, but in Germany and Spain were finding this issue on their desks. Um, and so when Amazon did respond and did roll out the change, it wasn't just in the UK, it was in France, it was in Spain and it was in the US. And suddenly there you're starting to see that power of, yes, these huge global companies where you can, maybe you couldn't find them at the beginning, like how on earth could you change a company like that? But the fact that now um, those millions of items are not going to landfill, the planet is better off and the workers are having a better experience is because of that one worker in one warehouse starting that question. Um, and so thinking about, you know, the potential, the power of organized really in a global context is that you're able to build power across the supply chain and across the geographies. It doesn't really matter where you live. If you are having an issue at work, you are able to, you are able to advocate for a change or to find out if others are affected. I think that's the real, that's where it gets exciting as well. Yeah, yeah. I really see that like potential growing for us. 
Yeah. Oh, so powerful. Oh, that's yeah, incredible. <laughs> um, and to chat to you a little bit about you as a founder and like your, your you know, your views and your experiences. Um, you know, you, you've co-founded the business. Um, so my question is, um, well, two questions. Like, you know, when did you know Nat was the right person to co-found with? And secondly, like, what's g- good general advice for anyone thinking of like co-founding a business when it comes to like, identifying the right co-founder? Totally. Yeah. And I guess it's kind of hit the first nail on the head, which is have a co-founder. <laughs> really important yeah, yeah. having a having that strong partnership and I think not doing it alone. Um, I think you get so much more from doing it, doing it as a pair. Um, so yeah, me and me and Nat have sort of known each other nearly for for a decade now. We actually first met quite early on in our careers. It was when uh when I was involved in in shareholder activism, as I mentioned, and Nat was uh working for a, a political organizing group called 38 Degrees. We uh, were introduced by by a mutual colleague, and we met up for what was meant to be a sort of twenty minute coffee to discuss the the NHS AGM, which I think Nat was looking to take the public along to. Didn't know how an AGM worked, so I wanted my kind of views or thoughts about how to do that creatively. Um, and it was just one of those moments where you just you know when you just hit it off with someone, suddenly two hours later you're still discussing the ins and outs yeah. of how the world works and sort of you know concocting troublemaking plans together and. We ended up then working together for several years um, in political organizing at 38 Degrees. And we had a really, really strong both working partnership, but also, you know, a friendship that um, grew from that as well. And I think really key thing with co-founding the business and running the business together is that really has to be a, a working, healthy partnership. And you need to have a bedrock of trust for that. And in the fact that we had worked together, we knew how we worked together. We knew all the right ways we were similar, but also the like good ways in which we were quite different as people and as personalities. Um, and that combination working, I think is a really, really critical thing to, to build in a business, particularly building a business from scratch where there's so many unknowns and uncertainties and various things, but having some, someone who you trust and where your skills are complementary, that's really, really critical, yeah. critical to doing that. No, that's, that's great advice. And yeah, I, you know, I interview lots of founders and um, whether they're sole founders or co-founding, they all pretty much 99% say you should always co-found. <laughs> um, but it's, it's obviously about getting the right, right co-founders. Um, my next question is, um, when it, in, in the context of organised, like what, what's, what keeps you awake at night? Good question. I mean, there's potentially a number of things <laughs> to answer there. I think um, there's all the kind of natural uncertainties of of building and growing a business for sure. And I think that's that's just never that's never all part of the startup journey. Um, in lots of ways, I like I like and I thrive off the that uncertainty and unknown because it's we're building something that doesn't exist, and there's a reason it needs to. Um, and there are proof points along the way of that a it's working and be that it is worthwhile to do. And th- those two things, as long as they are true, they can kind of keep you going through the more, what I'd call like the day-to-day stresses or the things that things that you're finding hard or things you're finding difficult. Um, and I think the kind of the, you know, the couple of critical things that we've always got our eye on as well is making sure that we're building a really strong culture that's true to the values of the company at the same time as growing the company itself and working on the issues that people are bringing up. Like, fundamentally we're about fixing the world of work we're also running a workplace ourselves we have the kind of like uh the 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 complementary nature of that um so something that uh we've been very intentional and also invested a lot of time in is building building our team culture in the way that is true to true to our values and we can actually say like um you know that every person in the team has an input has a say is able to build that culture collectively it's something that we uh did when there was only three or four of us in the team and it maybe seemed a little bit overkill, but actually very grateful that we did that early on and kind of built those values because it means that the way we operate as a company, being very transparent, you know, sharing, like we co- co-decided our salary policy, co-decided how we wanted to think about promotions and pay and all of these sorts of things. And actually doing that early on um, can really only make your business stronger and is also a very clear indication when you're hiring of the kind of company you are. So that you're attracting the people and the right kind of right kind of people to join your team. Oh yeah, hit nail on the head. My next question is going to be about how you build like a, a you know the right scalable culture for a tech for good company, and uh, you've answered that. I think being deliberate as early as you can, like being deliberate early days, is is the best way to ensure like a scalable scalable culture and, and like set of values that, that stay true to your like core core business. Um, 
I read, I, I was reading through your, your company website and obviously you have your principles up there, uh, which I love by the way. Um, you know, some of them were like, we dream big, anyone could take the lead, celebrate the small stuff. Um, I wondered, you know, personally for you, which, which one's most important to you and why? Oh, you're making me choose between. <laughs> I am. I am. I'm sure it took long enough to get down to those ones. <laughs> um, I think the main one that, um, obviously all of them, um, are, are close to my heart. But I th- there's one that's um, we call grounded by our members, and whenever, whatever way you frame it, or for want of a better word, it's really about um, the the key thing is remembering that it's really because we're a platform that's worker driven, so it's driven by the people who are experiencing, um, you know, whatever they're experiencing in the world of work. Remembering that it's about their experience and them empowering themselves and it's not about you (laughs) as an individual at the end of the day or about anything really to do with like your perspective and I think really like remembering that we are grounded by the people who are using the platform who are using the products and the change they're advocating for that both is the best way to run this kind of business um as well as is the reason you're there and the reason you're getting up in the morning I think that's the key thing um sort of cling to and and the key thing again like if you're you know having a tough day or finding things are you know a bit tricky because you're sometimes reading or exposed to you know what is happening across thousands of workplaces at a time that can be quite confronting um but being able to see those snippets of when someone has a breakthrough being able to read the survey responses um from people in the workplace suddenly saying like I cannot believe we've actually been able to make this happen. I cannot believe that we've been able to compile this report together, been able to get it up to Company HQ, or even just the material fact of, you know, we've had a lot of um, campaigns where uh, people have been able to win a living wage or improve their pay or improve their prospects. And really being able to see that at the end of the day has been the, um, I think the value that kind of makes us stronger as a team is knowing that we are grounded by that. And that's really, really what drives us. Yeah, that's, that's so powerful. And, and yeah, when I chat to Impact Founders and not necessarily ask that specific question, but generally ask kind of what they're proud of or what means the most to them, it's always the impact they see on like, you know, the, the people that they're working with. In fact, it's like helping someone that's homeless get into their first job or whatever it might be. Like there's, there's just a, a huge level of humility that comes with that. Um, in terms of talk about hiring for a little bit, I know you touched on it earlier briefly. Um, your, your CTO, so obviously, I guess you're looking after like product and tech, which arguably is like the hard, I mean, all hiring for an early stage startup is hard, <laughs> but product yeah. and tech is like another level normally. Um, I just wondered, you know, what do you feel organized do really well or, or what do you do differently to attract like great people into the team? Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, I really think hiring as a, it's it's a real exercise in judgment um and i think i definitely find like the more you do it you more you feel your ability to have good instincts and have good ways of making judgment grows um and i think the critical thing as well again for being a, a social mission driven business is that you also want to be aware of bias, various biases that can creep in in the hiring process as well particularly whatever your background everyone's got some form of bias level or something that creeps in that doesn't help that judgment of hiring the best people. And I think you've got to be uh, really quite disciplined with yourself and honest with yourself about knowing, <laughs> knowing as you go through hiring process, what are the things you're really looking for? What are the things that are like overreactions in your head that are really not to do with the person sitting in front of you and what they are saying? Um, and that's something that you don't just learn through one process. Every time you go in, you've got to be like, okay, what is the way in which I'm going to really engage uh, with the people we're hiring or the people who are going through a, through a hiring pipeline? I guess to, or like a couple of things that we've really looked out for, really found. Um, one is around, you know, whether it's engineering, design, content marketing, kind of like the skills aside, what you're really looking for is people who are good problem solvers and are really able to, you know, no matter what the task, no matter what the kind of, you know, you know, a job description in the startup changes a lot month by month is quite a kind of silly thing to kind of write at the start and then imagine that that's the entirety of of what you end up doing and so the critical thing really is like uh people who have that ability and that like natural inclination to problem solve and to learn and that's often the best way in which also your culture can end up being complementary because you're all learning it together and you're solving problems together um and so that's something we've given a fair amount of attention to in the hiring process, almost sometimes more so than the skill level because skills can be learnt. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, and I think one of the things that I've definitely found in engineering hires as well is like actually like if you've got someone where you're noticing they've got that um, problem scalability and they've got that potential, um, you know, maybe some of the more like 
harder coding skills, they can learn their first few months in the job while they are there and while they're part of the, the business you're building. I think that's been a really uh, positive thing in what um, in, in the hires we've made. And it's, yeah, it's made for a better team, I think, in the long run as well. No, hundred percent. Yeah. I'm all for mindset over skill set. Like, like you said, you know, if you get the right mindset, skills can be learned. So that's, that's the key thing to hire for. Um, last quick question is your opinions in terms of remote versus hybrid versus like office based and why? Which, which, which one, which one do you believe in? You've immediately set this up as a versus question and I'm obviously just going to <laughs> um, take the question down structurally. Okay, go for it. Um, Cause I don't believe, I don't believe it's really like any, any of the answers at expense of each other. I think it depends on um, the context, who your team are and what will work best for your company. Um, what we've done at Organize, we've had a very I mean, you know, the pandemic kicked off just as we were really, really starting. So we've only really known a remote first culture in, in that sense of kind of, um, you know, everyone kind of being on Zoom was was the, from the first morning we raised our pre-seed round. Um, I think the critical thing is give to give your team a choice, give them that flexibility, recognize that people have different demands on that time, whether that, whether that be, you know, childcare, laundry preference neurodiversity so many aspects of why you might prefer some bits of office work why you want to be always in an office and why you want to do remote um so we have a full hybrid culture ourselves and i think again depending on the company depending on the way of work i think that flexibility is super important um and is the the way in which like you as a team and you as a culture should be talking about those sorts of things and how you like to work together yeah good answer good answer um so in terms of you know, anyone listening that would like to follow the organized journey, like where, where's best to follow the company on socials? Uh, a variety of places. Depends on your personal inclinations. Uh, <laughs> Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, you'll find us all there. Um, also, you know, join, join the worker network, start talking to your colleagues, um, start finding out how you want to make your workplace better. Um, things can only go up from, from, from there. That's fair. So Greg, I don't know if you have any colleagues, but if you want to start as something as well, then by all means, hop on over. Um, and yeah, kind of always, uh, we've also always got a jobs page on our website as well. So check that out if that's, uh, if you're currently, if you're currently looking for work as well, um, always open to, to approaches and to emails from people. Yeah, definitely do. Uh, cool. Well, it, it's been a really pleasurable chat, Bex. Like I've, I've learned loads as well. So, um, just want to thank you again for your time and, you know, wish you and the organized team all the best. Thank you, Greg. It was, uh, yeah, great talking to you and thanks for, thanks for the invite. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.